Brian Healy, the father of Christian Goth and the frontman of Dead Artist Syndrome. Brian, man, this really is an honor. You're right, it is. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I just appreciate your interest uh, in what I'm doing. You're just happy because I sent you that $10 in the mail so we could talk. $10? I live in Southern California, pal. And <laughs> 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 $10? I give homeless people more than $10, and that's just so they'll go away and stop guilting me because they're homeless and I'm not yet. Just kidding. Okay, <laughs> we can restart this. I'm, I'm being silly. I, I will firm up and act concise and artistic. In other words, pompous, arrogant, and condescending. You got to tell me what kind of coffee you're drinking. Uh, it's uh, a blend called Pacific Gold. It's supposed to be a dark roast. I'm, I'm not one of these foo-foo coffee guys. To me, you know, 7-Eleven, Circle K, Come and Go, AM, PM, you know, I'm an off-the-rack coffee guy. To me, the biggest scam Satan's ever pulled is getting people to pay $3 for 50 cents worth of coffee. <laughs> okay, so you're not a purist. Not, not at all. I mean, I, seriously, at a certain point, you only think, if I put five cups in front of you and gave them all exotic names and just got them from various donut shops, I don't think anyone would know the difference. You know, they'd be sitting there swirling it in their mouths, talking about bouquet and the dark roasting. And yeah, it's like, no, it's just coffee, man. Well, you're talking to Canadians that are sort of coffee purists. Well, I understand. Everyone's got, every, every form of refuge has its vice. <laughs> And that is definitely my vice, is having coffee. having coffee. No, and I'm not a purist. I will just take what's coming and I'll be happy with it. Except at the local donut shop, which is just has a terrible brew. Yeah. Now, do you uh, do you ever go for like exotics, like you know the the uh, French vanilla creamer or Bailey's or Kahlua or you know anything you know the weird additives that people tend to do now? Well, here's the weirdest one: is they have an animal that's like a civet. That actually eats the coffee beans. Yeah, oh, I've heard about this, yeah. And craps it out. We've had it, and it's not really very good coffee. Well, I would imagine it tastes like, uh, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, this coffee tastes like, well, funny thing you said that, because it is, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Evangelism is not my strong suit these days. Even though you're an ordained minister. Well, yeah, but I'm kind of trying to reprogram the world to... I'm Christian, but not one of them. I didn't think in my lifetime someone could turn the term evangelical into a vicious, dirty word. And it certainly happened, hasn't it? I, I believe so. Yeah, I think, I think Jesus has become a brand to the American church to, uh, to sell various things and gather mailing lists and power and has really any, nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. Well, you've certainly stated that in your music over the years, haven't you? Well, I... I don't know if I, I guess I have, you know, but when I write, I just write about what's influencing me and what I'm thinking at the time. And sometimes, yeah, I do think that way. I mean, at one time, I can't say this anymore. At one time, I used to tell people, pick up a copy of Christianity Today and you'll see what real Christians are doing in the world. Well, now if you pick up a copy of Christianity Today, you might as well pick up Rush Limbaugh's newsletter. You know, BGA should be shut down as far as I'm concerned before Franklin destroys the legacy completely of Billy Graham. If you had a list of things Billy Graham said you should never do because I did them and they were stupid, uh, apparently Franklin got the wrong list. He thinks the title's different. It says, you know, 
how to how to lead VGA into spiritual bankruptcy. Take positions on issues that don't matter. You know, isolate enormous swaths of the population because of your political opinions. Make cultural things spiritual. You know, the usual rundown. And it's true because Christianity is political, unfortunately, especially, I guess, in the States, not so much in Canada. Well, here's the problem. It's political in the States, but it's not political the way it should be. It should be political like the Sermon on the Mount. They've made it political as a laissez-faire capitalism and consumerism and corporatism and power. Unfortunately, I don't know if it's misinformed or a lack of intelligentsia, they have convinced people that they need to be a single-issue voter. So if you're making minimum wage, they've got you voting for a party that has absolutely no interest in your well-being, but they're pro-life. And it's like, no, you just can't vote on one issue. You know, it doesn't make sense. But that's what they have programmed people to do here. And especially when you have what were once reputable ministries, it's been documented, you kicking 200 grand, you get focus on the family uh, telling everyone you're a Christian issue now. And you get their mailing list. And then, you know, Dr. Dobson or who's ever hosting that day goes on the air. And the first time I saw this, they made the Panama Canal a Christian issue. Mm. Now, how the Panama Canal being by Carter being given back to Panama is Christian, I have no idea. <laughs> but somehow that, yeah, that was the first time. And then you've got these professional fundraisers like Ralph Reed and stuff and Frank Luntz who create buzzwords and terms, sell them to Christians convinced Christians they've got nowhere else to go, and then they ignore them after they're in office or, or serve lip service to them, and these people just keep coming back for more. I mean, it's the perfect audience. It's like you get to smack them in the head, and they have to say, it's okay that you're sorry, unless they consider you a liberal. Then you're going to hell, so it doesn't really matter. They're just dusting Satan off their shoulders by ignoring you. Yeah. See, we got into politics already. I am a political guy. I, I got to tell you. You know, it, there's a great line in the uh, in the musical, The Producers. It makes no difference if it's politics or history. All you've got to know is everything is showbiz. And that's literally, you know, the way I perceive it. It's, it's all some sort of thing to sell something else. I think you're setting yourself up to run, Brian, because here you are. You're in showbiz and you've got a political stance. No, I mean, I'm not in the business. Okay, I used to be more in the business of show, as we say. But, uh, no, now I'm just a guy in a band. You know, that's the other thing. I mean, I say things that are controversial, and I have a lot of opinions, and since it's Canadian, I'll, you know, self-censor myself and not use the usual profanity adjectives that I am of want to use. But it's the kind of thing where I just don't suffer fools gladly. Um, I mean, I used to have on my Facebook site, and then it was requested by someone I take it off. I don't think all conservatives are stupid, but of the stupid people I know, they are all conservatives. <laughs> now, whether, you know, why that is, I don't know. And it, it, it's like deep down, I, you know, I've got this theory, show me a fundamentalist and I'll show you basically a miserable person. This is how I view fundamentalism. It's like if you learn to play piano, but instead of enjoying the music, all you do is concentrate on your mistakes and the bad notes. <laughs> and I just don't see that as a way to live your life in a positive manner or uh, living your life like a fire drill because, boy, you know, Jesus might just come back on Tuesday. 
It's like, really, that's the best you've got for being a nice person and doing on to others is Jesus could come back and surprise you? How's that working out for you? I hear you totally, man. <laughs> like I said, American Christianity has so many flavors of stupid. You know, and, 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 and now I know Canada. I've got friends that are Canadian. But at, I've got to say, at least your degrees of stupid seem to at least be smarter degrees of stupid. I don't know. It depends on the person you're talking to. Yeah, I mean, our degrees of stupid, you know, can make anything. You know, I know people that have prayed whether it's okay to have the devil's food cake instead of the cheesecake. Oh, right. You mean and pot you blessings ask, oh, instead of potluck. Right. Yeah, it, it's like, wait a second, what's the difference? Well, one's got devil in the name. I had a friend who asked someone to remove a statue of a frog from their house because a frog was mentioned in the Old Testament as a sign of a plague, and it was against God. Oh, and it's my. like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> That'd be like, hey, I've stopped drinking. Close down all the liquor stores. It's like, that's absolutely the wrong approach. I think, you know, as people in general and as Christians, we need to vaccinate ourselves from the evil in the world, not try to quarantine ourselves. Exactly. And just accept it. I mean, evil comes up a lot in, in what I do because I, I, I find it fascinating because everyone's looking for horns and red tails and flames and teeth and fangs. And no, it's usually a smile. It's usually something desirable. It's something you want. It's something you want to walk into. It's not something you want to flee. That wouldn't be a good sales pitch if you're evil. Evil sales pitch is... There's something desirable about it. There's a story. You know, it's like a con man. They never just say, give me $50. They give you a story first. And they lure you in. And then you feel connected. And then they drop the boom. Well, I think that's what a lot of, uh, a lot of evangelical churches do now. At one time, I used to use this illustration uh, for the militia movement in the United States, which is crackpot crazy. Uh, please don't bomb my house, guys. I, I love your rights. Uh, but it starts out at one end with uh, Second Amendment rights, private property rights. And then it starts adding things in and getting narrower and narrower until you're at the other end of the funnel and you're Timothy McVeigh. Mm -hmm. And by that time, they've slowly prepped you and, and, and sold your mind. Well, I think the church is starting to do that. They start with love, peace, and joy. Then about at the halfway point, it's like, uh, I used to make this joke that uh, I'm good enough for Jesus, but am I good enough for Chuck Smith? But I like Chuck. I use Chuck as an example, but that was always my example. And you know what? I was good enough for Chuck Smith. Guess what? A lot of people who went to his church, I wasn't good enough for them, though. Their standards were higher than Chuck Smith's because they didn't have the wisdom or the spiritual maturity. Fortunately, I go to a church that is totally the opposite way. I've always said about how churches are exclusive instead of being inclusive. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, that, that's one of the things. I keep seeing these people post these things on Facebook, and I have this one comment I use repeatedly. Well, apparently that church doesn't have a welcome mat. You know, my winnowing bar, uh, I know now for insurance reasons they can't do it, but my winnowing bar used to be, is there an ashtray outside the church? If there's an ashtray outside the church, I'm going to be fine there. Yeah. And it's got nothing to do with smoking. It's got to do with the acceptance of people as they are. If it's got 30 signs that says no smoking on, and I love this word, the campus, the campus, <laughs> you know, I guess it could be worse. They could say the holy monastery, sacred ground, but yeah, if it's not corporatized, it's over pietized. So, 
I am so glad that I'm talking to you. Oh, man, we are so much on the same page. I sell so few records, I can't make my audience any smaller. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when anyone says, so what's the market like, you know, for your audience? And I just say, always going up. Which you can't go any further down. It has to always be going up, you know, uh, especially in the Christian music end of things, because I'm a mainstream artist. But as far as, you know, my Christian fan base, I'm a subculture and a subculture subculture. I have got this thin slice six ways to Sunday already. And hence why you're going to be at audio feed. Yes, so I can lose that 186 fans that are left, <laughs> if there's that many. I'm thinking of having a Kickstarter where I pay them to take the record. Please take my record. Right, start a GoFundMe so I can do a Kickstarter to give people money to listen to my record. Oh, wait, they did that in the 70s. It was called Payola. And dang it, wouldn't you know it, I got into radio right as that started ending. Uh, just <laughs> lousy timing. You just blew it. Yeah. Is that been I your mean, life, if, lousy if I, timing? Especially if, I'd have known, if, especially if I'd have known someone was going to hand me a list from Burkhard Abrams and make me play a bunch of songs I hit anyway. It's like, well, at least if I took the bribe, I might actually, you know, hit a song I like. You know? <laughs> Canadian public radio, man, they, you know, they could be talking about a motocross magazine and somehow they'll work in, you know, the First Nations angle on the story. Because uh, I don't know, I think you guys approach your, uh, your, your First Nations native North Americans differently than America. It's quite to us, different. They're, to us, they're guilt trips and casinos. To you guys, there, there's actually a sense of responsibility, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like when I did one of the, the first Christian songs dealing with AIDS, mm -hmm. I was an outlayer. I wasn't trying to exploit AIDS. Well, now you've got Lady Gaga, and she can't go four seconds without condescendingly patronizing a gay audience. It's like, okay, we get it. You like us. You know, I know there's gay people out there that are saying that. It's like, all right, you're laying it on. We, we got it. We know you like us. You're taking our money. You know, quit beating it to death. You don't have to keep telling me how much you're supporting, you know. I'm straight, but that's just how I'd perceive it. You know, oh, I it's hear just, you. All right, enough crumb throwing. I get it. Yeah, so how's that Trump thing going down in Canada? <laughs> Trump? Mm -hmm. <laughs> he usually gets laughed at as being a buffoon, and he's rated as being about the equivalent of Toronto's ex-mayor, Rob Ford. Uh, you know, I, you know I, I was going to say, that is so unfair to Rob Ford. At least Rob Ford was on crack. And Rob Ford is now being idealized now that he's passed away. Guys, did you forget what happened? Yeah, I don't know if it's a libertarian bent or what, but Rob Ford and Rush Limbaugh have pulled two of the greatest scams in the world. Conservative drug addicts. How do you pull that off? I think he had to live in Toronto to actually enjoy Rob Ford because he kept getting voted back in. And everybody else would just laugh and it would just cringe every time the guy would be on the news. Because he would be doing something extremely stupid again. Yeah. At first, I thought it was just robbing the drugs. And I started reading some of his brother's quote. And apparently, their whole family's a piece of work. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've just lost the conservative Canadian vote on this. You guys don't need to buy the record either. Sorry. This can be the, the synopsis when I die uh, interview. You know how they've always got the obituary cut? You know, well, an unreleased interview. Well, no one's going to care if I die, except for my family, one. But if something should happen and they do care, yeah, you've got great stuff here. But Brian, you and I are close now, so I'm going to care. And we're just awesome. going to put this on repeat.
just keep looping constantly this whole conversation after that would you pass be great. Away. I mean, I, I just like talking to real people like a real person. I mean, that that's the one advantage I've got is uh, I've known so many friends in Christian music, and they just behave so differently when they're at a show. And it's just like my thing is I'm who I am wherever I am. Mm-hmm. I don't need someone seeing me light up a cigarette driving down the 405 freeway 20 minutes after the gig, and their soul is crushed because I'm one of those Christians. It's like, no, I'm one of those Christians right up front, you know. Yeah, I'm into sports, too. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, actually, I'm not into sports. Auto racing's about it as far as my sports thing. Though I am, am sad to hear about Gordie Howell. Gordie Howell, Prince, Glenn Frey, it's just like, this is not a good year for legends. Muhammad Ali. I mean, Jagger and Richards have got to be looking at their watches and sweating at this point. So you've got to be nervous, too. Oh, yeah, I'm not a legend, trust me. Only in my own mind. <laughs> about- Maybe to the refrigerator because I take weight off of him. <laughs> I'm tired of me talking about myself. Why don't you talk about me for a while? I got to do that because we are going to talk about you. But being called uh, the father of Christian goth, what kind of a reaction did Christians give when they first heard the music of dead artist syndrome? Uh, surprisingly, young people... Uh, I think we're a little more shocked. When I first showed up, we were really nice and we broke down, you know, a lot of barriers. And uh, I was, quote unquote, a pioneer, which basically means you get a lot of arrows in your back. And when I went to play the Gospel Music Association New Artist Showcase, all these blue haired old ladies just absolutely loved what I did because their frame of reference was George Beverly Shea, Bean Crosby deep-voiced baritone crooners to younger people. All they hear is Jim Morrison and all this dark thing. I don't particularly think I'm doing anything dark. So, you know, the whole Christian goth thing, I think, uh, just got assigned to me. Well, first of all, you know, the person who's on record is saying it, the late Roz Williams of Christian Death. He apparently heard it and said, oh, my God, it's the father of Christian goth, you know. And that's how I got that. I've been told by people that they've heard him say that. I never heard him say that directly. I mean, the most I heard him say is, could you get out of my way? I'm trying to get to the dressing room. As far as the goth label, I mean, that's just what I do. You know, I think I write pop songs and do kind of popish rock songs, but I have a a deep voice and everyone assumes it's dark. Well, it is your vocal delivery, but I mean, goth, that's how I would have described Prince of Darkness that you brought back out in 1990. Yeah, yeah, and they're and they're gonna, you know, that's going to come out again, uh, you know, in vinyl. It sounds like uh, we're we're in the process of someone wants to put it out in vinyl, and uh, which I'd be thrilled over, you know, because I, I love vinyl. But uh, uh, I unfortunately got into music uh, when the day of the gorgeous twelve-inch album mm. cover, you know, went by the wayside. I used to love going to a record store and buying a record. And and just even before you put it on, opening it and looking at the artwork was just like an experience unto itself. Now you open up a CD or, you know, something, uh, you need a microscope. And then, you know, and cassettes were the same way. And I just still can't understand the whole download thing. There's something weird to me about buying something and not having a physical product in my hand, you know. I like the convenience. I like everything about it. I agree with Neil Young. I think they screwed up the logarithms. I think audio quality could be improved on it. But uh, 
And this is from a guy who's selling records as a download, and people buy more downloads than the physical unit. But it was weird to me not having a physical disc in my hand, you know, and summing through the lyrics or looking at the pictures while I'm listening to the disc. Does that mean you're going to redo the artwork for Prince of Darkness? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that what it'd be nice is the way I created it the first time uh, was an extremely lengthy process because uh, it was all done physical. And now I think it's like three clicks in Photoshop, <laughs> you know, which is nice. You know, I, I used to love that. Hey, Dana Spallinger, who went to the Pittsburgh School of Art <laughs> and studied all that graphic arts. Well, now everything you do can be done by a four-year-old, you know, with the basic software on his uh, Mac or PC. Oh, I think you're <laughs> exaggerating a little bit, man. That's really... I, I'm not. I'm not. I remember <laughs> having to pay someone to typeset somebody, cutting it into little squares, taking wax on the back and putting it on things and then photographing it and having it turned into film and then separations. Not anymore, baby. Someone types it in, they pick a font, they hit send, they hit click, and it's done. You can do an album cover in, in five minutes flat. And that's only if you had the template wrong the first time. Okay, well, back to Prince of Darkness. I thought that album had a real goth flavor. Now, you mentioned about doing pop music. And I guess, really, your later stuff seemed to head more that way. Was that a purposeful change? Uh, I just write about what I'm feeling at the time, and at that time there was a lag in music. One of the things about Prince of Darkness is there were two tunes on it that I dropped off that was more in tune to uh, the way I was, but when it came out, uh, we made the decision to just you know go the solid, uh, instead of a comedy drama, just go total drama, and that means it either came out as a drama or a really unfunny comedy. So I just do what I am doing at the time. And at that point, I was creating in the studio uh, with, with the songs and all the pre-stuff. And I know exactly what I want to do when I hear it. And lucky for me, I've got, you know, extremely talented friends. Uh, it just baffles everyone else how I just like whip them and bully them into what I want. <laughs> because part of the key to, to what I do, I mean, now I've got dead artist syndrome. I've set it up from this point on to where it is a band. But prior to that, it was a band, but I really liked it to have like a turnstile effect so everything was uniquely different. So that was nice. And there were times I'd work with people that were uh, a little more novice, and they just couldn't believe, you know, that I had these people who they looked up to, how, you know, I would beat them into submission you know, usually I didn't have to, frankly, because the purpose was to get these people like Mike Rowe or Derry or Jim Nicholson or Ojo Taylor or Mike Knott and make them do something they can't do in their own project. Those guys are major people. For people that are really into this type of music are going to instantly recognize those names. And how much did you have to pay them? Nothing, because they're my friends. I knew these guys before they were enigmas and famous. This isn't, you know, what's actually happened, but it's sort of like, you know, looking at that ex-girlfriend and going, lighten up, honey, I held your hair while you puked. <laughs> you know, it's that kind of thing. I know where the bodies are buried. I, they know everything about me. I know everything about them. And the, the whole thing was going to the shows and stuff. That was the disconnect for me. You know, I see them all change, and they're not even trying. 
it's sort of like they all go on best behavior. You know, like like someone like Mike Rowe, you want to know the most honest Mike Rowe. It's when he tells that semi-off-color joke, because as long as I've known Mike, he's like the 10-year-old kid who learned a dirty word in church, you know, and wants <laughs> to try it out every now and then. But a lot of guys just all of a sudden put on absolute best behavior, and I just couldn't do that because I'm not good at best behavior. I'm an actor, but I don't want to act in real life. I wish you were a little bit more opinionated, though. You just seem to be such a go-with-the-flow type of guy. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, I guess we evolve by adapting, and uh, I guess I've had to become adaptable. I can't afford to be thin-skinned because I'm fat. No, uh, I can't afford to be thin-skinned just because that's not my nature. That, and I know how my brain works, and one of the things I always struggled with when I was younger, I mean, I can pretty much see someone, see what their greatest fear and weakness is, and then the hardest thing is the self-control not to eviscerate them, you know, if they say something that offends me. Like I said, I don't suffer fools gladly. I am not going to sit there and tap, you know, I, I go straight for the nuclear option. Now, you brought up both acting and comedy. I read yes. somewhere that you were a stand-in double for John Candy. Yeah, yeah, I, I did three films with John. Uh, probably the nicest guy Canada could have produced. And, uh, yeah, God bless him, he was a great guy. I did that for, uh, let's see, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Part of Spaceballs, and uh, all of uh, Great Outdoors. That must have been so cool. It, it, it was. I mean, and, and it's nice because, you know, there are certain things I can look at. It's, you know, it's just like, I love that scene where John gets whacked in the head with the tennis racket when he's, uh, you know, they're chasing the bat and Dan Aykroyd hits him in the face with the tennis racket. It's like, yeah, well, I didn't enjoy it as much because that was my face. <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, that was so funny when the bear's jumping on the door and yeah, try being under the door. It's so funny how Hollywood works, you know. Because it's like, okay, well, here's the million-dollar celebrity, and here's the guy, you know, who does his, his light stunts and double work and inserts and stuff. We don't mind killing him. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> we can get another one of him, you know. God forbid, you know, the, the star cuts his finger. <laughs> you know, even John used to have fun with it. Oh, man, that's too funny. And is this why you live in Hollywood? Oh, uh, well, I, yeah, I, I was at the time. I was actually living in Pasadena. Because, I mean, living in Hollywood, no one in Hollywood is what they say they are. The waitress is not a waitress. She's an actress. The bartender's a screenwriter and going to film school or something. And I was just a guy who happened to work at a job. And it was just like any other factory job I had. Only the final product was far more visible uh, to the general public. I could while away the hours conversing with the flowers, consulting with the rain. With the thoughts I'd be thinking, I could be another Lincoln if I only had a brain. And now that's going to be stuck in your head all day. It is. Gonna it's going to be. It's going to be there. And you also yeah, seem to be more like the type of guy that would be stepping on the flowers, not talking to uh, them. No, nah, no, nah, I'm I'm pretty much a tree hugger. Yeah, I, I would be avoiding that uh, unless it's mosquitoes. I hate mosquitoes, and they look at me like a hometown buffet. <laughs> There's an area with mosquitoes, you want to be next to me because they're all on me. They're not going near you. I'm like Sugar Mountain to them. I love hearing you talk and all these opinions. 
you've always expressed a lot of opinion in your music. You've often been compared to Steve Taylor. You know, taking a look at, let's be delicate here and say, inconsistencies in the church and society. So what was it that DAS wanted to change? Uh, I didn't really want to change anything because that would imply I had a utilitarian purpose. I just uh, say what I think, and sometimes I even think before I say it on rare occasion. And I think my overall goal is just to you know, express a, a feeling, a thought, an emotion, a character, you know, Everything I try and do is sort of like a song for an unmade film. Everything is like a, a little cohesive story in itself, but yet part of a bigger production. Because uh, I still think in terms of whole albums. Uh, and now everyone thinks in terms, it's almost like the 50s, everyone thinks in terms of singles and single songs now. I think of overall context as well. And that that's sort of an old guy thing. So for me... Uh, being opinionated a lot of times, it, it's sort of like everyone goes, oh, you know, you're so funny. And it's like, well, no, I'm not trying to be funny. I just said what I was thinking. You're not sure if you're actually just trying to antagonize people? No, I'm not trying to antagonize people at all. I mean, if I, if I, if I see someone and go, oh, cute, sure, Target have a sale. <laughs> I'm not trying to antagonize them. It's just the first thing that came to my mind. I mean, it's not like Tourette's. It's just that, you know, sometimes I, I just say things. Uh, uh, you know, I've gotten smarter. I'm the last guy to answer, does this make me look fat? <laughs> no, being fat probably makes you look fat. That's just covering it up very poorly. <laughs> you know, that's coming from a fat guy. Don't want to be called a fatista. No, I just think that you're better off being honest and being hated for who you are than being liked for someone you're not. Doesn't do much for record sales too, does it? Well, like I said, I, I would like to think it's my lack of talent and, uh, looking for a specialized audience that that does that i'd like to think that if someone else were doing my songs you know they'd be considered pretty pretty good songs you know i turn a phrase pretty well or i interpret someone else's songs i think pretty well but uh i, I think i was just so offbeat that on one level people just don't take me seriously and that's okay i like that and that gives me the freedom to say and do what i want you know, maybe if I had to answer to an audience or had some A&R guy, you know, going, oh, you, you know, you can't say that, you know, that you think gay people are treated unfair because too many people, you know, don't feel that way and think that they're so, you know, it's like, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not going to, I don't care about those people. But they buy records. Well, then they buy records, you know. I think we should treat every sin as the same and, you know, love people as they are where they are. If that's a problem then sorry, there's something wrong with your version of how you interpret the gospel, not me. I've got gay people in my band. I know tons of gay Christians, you know, and I love and adore them, and I've known they've been gay for years. I can't believe that, you know, some guy uh, in a band will make some, what fundamentalists consider pro-gay just by saying, you know, I think we should just treat all sin and sin and be accepting and loving, and, mm -hmm. you know, it really doesn't matter. I mean... You talk to adulterers and you don't want to deny them their rights, so why would you want to deny anyone else, you know, based on another thing that you quote-unquote perceive as sin, which I don't necessarily do. Uh, I don't thin-slice my theology. And, uh, no, I, I've known gay Christians my, my entire life. You know, I'm just surprised that other people didn't realize they were out there and existed. 
And I'm sorry, but they shouldn't have to go away just because you don't like it. Don't flatter yourself. Don't be so arrogant. They really don't want to hit on you. Maybe you're just not that good looking. Maybe the same reason you can't get a girlfriend, you probably wouldn't be able to get a boyfriend. You know, maybe you're just a dirtbag and a loser. Okay, that's a little hard. But you know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, maybe you've just got a personality that stinks. You know, but yeah, some, some of the anti-gay stuff I just hear just cracks me up. Yeah, at least in this country, I mean, being called liberal is like a notch uh, above or below gay, depending on who you're talking to. I remember it used to be common, as a put-down, you'd call someone a fag. Well, that, that's how I think a lot of fundamentalists interpret the word liberal. You know, they use it as an adjective to describe, you know, what they perceive as weak sissy, screwing up everything. You must have known that I was going to ask about your 2001 album, Jesus Wants You to Buy This Record. You got to tell us about the title track. Well, I had gotten an email that said a certain artist whose music I was never fond of to begin with, uh, we'll just pick a name out of the air, Carmen, uh, <laughs> his record company sent out this email that basically said the only way we can show the gospel is true is by making sure this record not only enters number one on the Christian charts, but makes an impact in the mainstream world so they will know the power of the gospel. And I just thought, so basically you want us to tell people Jesus wants them to buy this record. And I thought, I like this. I'm going to go with this. Because that's literally what it came down. The gospel's not true or false. You know, the only thing that proves the truth of God is in John 17, that we're, you know, how we treat each other as Christians is what will show the world the love of God. And right now, we're not doing a really good job of that. So Jesus wants you to buy this record was just sort of a, a whole thing with the whole evangelical mentality of ignore the losers. If we can just get the winners in, then all the losers will follow. And it's just like, well, how nice, you know, to have refugees to the cross. That, that's just great. I always had a tough time with Carmen because I never understood the appeal. Well, I mean, when you've got a guy whose theology is so bad that even your imagination can cause, you know, unconscious sin in his book, by the time he's done clicking through his lists of do's and don'ts, you start to realize, well, if I do what this guy says, I don't need Jesus at all because I can literally just work all of these things off the list. I think his theology sort of neutralizes a need for Jesus or, or forgiveness or, or salvation or compassion. It's just like focus on yourself and just find things and don't do them. Well, if that's all there was to it, whatever. But that isn't what's all to it. That's never going to happen. I don't care. You're just never going to attain perfection. I mean, I always think that you should just be open and honest with God and everyone else in, in your life. And that way, at least when you do let them down, it won't be that big a fall off the precipice. So Jesus wants you to buy this record was basically sort of a series of little vignettes. Uh, and, and, you know, in the song itself just had to do with uh, the whole exploitation thing. And like I said, the gospel of the greatness. You know, I, I see God in, in the little simplistic dirty parts of the world and apparently they see it as bubbly joy pristine and privileged that's just not my personal experience 
Talk about you personally, Brian. Did you see God in your life when you had all these major health issues a few years ago? Absolutely. You know, see, the thing is that my perspective on God is very different from my earliest thoughts. You know, I hear people talk about how God came into it. I can't remember a time when I didn't know of or think of God. It just didn't make sense. I mean, I mean, I was surprised, you know, it was a shock for Davy of Davy and Goliath that there was God. It, you know, even at that age, it was just like, how could this kid not know that, you know? Uh, <laughs> well, and you I are like, going back, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, and I always like the reedy version of the original Almighty oh, Fortresses Are God at the beginning. Uh, you know, as the theme to Davy and Goliath, you know, gee, Davy, God is everywhere. Well, no kidding. You need the dog to tell you that? It's like, where, where were you, raised in a barn? <laughs> you know? But, uh, yeah, my favorite episode, by the way, for those looking up Davy and Goliath on Wikipedia, is the boy in the polka dot tie. It does a great way of dealing with racial prejudice. Okay, that one I'll have to look up. Yeah, The Boy in the Polka Dot Tie is a great episode of Davy and Goliath for you purists out there. Just so long as you don't start saying, hey, Davy, mm -hmm. that would be helpful. Gee, Davy. That's the one. I that don't gets... think we ought to do that. I could do some Astro for you. Okay, Rorge. You know, <laughs> which, if you notice, Astro and Scooby-Doo pretty much have the same voice. Yeah, if you listen closely, it's the same voice. <laughs> but the thing is, if you read anything about the history of Scooby-Doo, it's all based on uh, Shaggy's drug hallucinations. The dog's not really talking to him. <laughs> he thinks the dog's talking to him, you know? I never dug that it's deep. The theology of Scooby-Doo and Davy and Goliath now, and Carmen, they're all about at the same level, except uh, Carmen's the child's one. I'm sure he's a nice guy, and, and he'll have a long life unless he falls over his money. <laughs> yeah, hearing about shows where he's got 70,000 people at a show, and I'm thinking I'd have a tough time finding anybody that even cared for him. That's the scary part. See, Carmen's like Trump. It's not so much they're the problem, it's that there's actually an audience out there for that. That's the part that scares me, that there's an audience that agrees and wants to hear this stuff. It's like... Oh, not and not so much the music, but the message. It's like, that appeals to you, huh? Okay. Let's talk about that just for a second. So here you are, you're really part of the mainstream, but you're also part of the, as you mentioned, Christian sub-sub-sub-genre. What do you think about where the direction that Christian music now, that's labeled as Christian music, is going? Well, I think it's a ghetto, honestly. I think it's just a way to marginalize... First of all, I think there's three factors. Many are thawed, but few are frozen. I think there's a lot of people doing it that would never stand a chance of succeeding in any other form of music because the only thing that makes it special is lyrical content. Mm -hmm. Briefly, when I wrote for CCM, uh, Joni Erickson had done an album, and I wrote a scathing review of it that didn't get published. And they said, well, how could you do this? You know, she's in a wheelchair. You know, she's quadriplegic. She draws with her mouth. And I said, yeah, but she's doing an album, you know. Mm -hmm. And as a singer, she's a great saxophone player. Oh, so, woo. yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, but if you're going to throw yourself into that arena, then you get judged in that arena for what you do. You don't get... So so in Christian music, oh, he's singing about Jesus, so we'll ignore the fact that his lyrics and the music is absolutely insepid, derivative ripoff of 
enter secular band's name here. Then you've got the talented people that no matter how hard they try, for some reason, they did not go into the mainstream or they pursued the mainstream and it was hard and it didn't work out or the record company they were on, you know, signed U2 so they got ignored because the whole record company went on tour with U2 or something like that. Those people and they're trying to eke out a living doing wonderful artistic stuff but the people that are into that wonderful artistic stuff are few and far between because all they're getting fed is pablum i mean it's a dated reference now but when the hardest substance in the world is jello then the archers sound like heavy metal <laughs> you know you got to be old to figure that one out so insert you know really fluffy christian pop record here for that last reference on the archers marketing in Christian music has always gone for these really insepid things. For a while we had the hat girls. Then we had the barefoot hat girls. You know, and, you know, and it just keeps changing, you know. It's like, let's see, what can we do? How much shoulder can we show? And the other thing is there's that whole other genre of Jesus is my boyfriend type songs, you know. Or the songs that if anyone outside a fundamentalist looks at it, realizes that their title is a complete sexual innuendo. I had to review a record once called uh, Catherine Volgate, Love Explosion. That was the name of a really popular porno film. And I don't think they meant it the same way she did. But, you know, there was a lot of that, you know. Uh, you know, in Christian songwriting, there's always the third verse surprise. That always drives me nuts. You go all the way through this song, and then at the last minute, you throw in the Jesus crumb. It'd be like watching a porno film, and at the end, someone just looks at the camera and goes, Oh my God, we should repent and follow Jesus. Let's pray. <laughs> and, and I mean, it's, it's just like, what the heck? I just watched some of the you know greatest porn in the world, and you're going to just have them pray at the end, and we're going to call it Christian. Terrific. Yeah, it's like Caligula. I know, I'll repent. <laughs> you know? thank you very much let's sell it in christian bookstores i'm going to bring this back on track again brian last year you brought out the latest dead artist syndrome album kissing strangers how often do you kiss strangers and what does your wife think about that my wife one lets me get away with murder uh <laughs> two i used to dj in clubs and stuff i mean for years i would greet people with Hey, I'm drunk. Want to make out? <laughs> you know, because because I found it was a great way to get a sense of who the person is. If they laughed, you know, cool. If they acted all hoity-toity and judgmental, well, I probably didn't want to hang out with them, you know, or acted horribly offended. It's like, wow, if this person can roll with the punches, we're going to get along just fine. And, you know, and if someone actually just kissed me, it'd be like, wow, that was cool. And then I'd just start thinking who else is this or what else has this person kissed? I'm not sure I should still be doing this. I'm going to end up with something. But Kissing Strangers, why bring out the album? Here it is 25 years after your first album. Uh, well, one, I'm just an insepidly slow worker. <laughs> you know, I, I, I like to joke, you know, to the Christian audience, I always joke, you know, the reason there's so much time between the records is I'm still trying to win that best new artist dove, you know, and if you wait long enough in between, uh, the audience, I mean, 
let's put it this way. So many people that bought Prince of Darkness backslid three years later. You know, I can just keep remarketing the same thing over and over again because the audience just keeps recycling through because the simplistic form of Christianity they've been sold doesn't work, you know, and they get divorced or something terrible happens in their life and they walk away. I mean, now I just roll my eyes and just go, really? You know how many people have sent me to hell that are now atheists or pagans or serial killers or drunks or something, and I'm still here? You know, I'm sorry that no one told you that this was a marathon and not a sprint and you burnt out. You know, but if you're a little more honest and realistic, you know, perhaps you can come back and, and try and follow God the right way this time. You know, kind of like be yourself, be natural, be who you are. I mean, if, if you're an asshole, be a religious asshole. I mean, that's what I've noticed. You know, it says we become new creatures, but on certain levels we don't. If you if you were a jerk before you were a Christian, chances are you'll be a religious idiot. <laughs> You know, instead of channeling things into being a judgmental right-wing moron, you'll just channel yourself into being a right-wing militant Christian fundamentalist moron. You think you're evangelizing, but every non-Christian you come in contact with can't stand to be around you. And that's when you've got to just stop and take a breath and just go, I'm not doing this right. Why, why is it all these Christians love me, but non-Christians just roll their eyes and turn the other way when I'm coming towards them? Oh, yeah, and I've met a lot of those. Yeah. You know, I don't think people reject God or Christianity. I think they reject Christians. And for good reason. I mean, it's just the well, way absolutely. Christians present themselves is often so poorly done. And as you say, you know, the whole business about trying to jam a Bible down somebody's throat, I mean, it's a misused, cliched term, but I've met Christians that would seriously like to try to do that. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's like you just can't like vanilla ice cream. you got to like a specific type of vanilla ice cream. See, I'm a nuanced guy, and it seems to be two major types of Christian. People that see things black and white and people that are arguing shades of white, you know, ultra zealots. And uh, yeah, I'm neither. I see nuance. I see gray. I see difference of colors. I see shades of things. I'm not a didactic, this is how it is, guys. I know it. This is the way I perceive it. This is it. This is how it's supposed to be. And usually you'll notice, gosh, that kind of always goes along with what they think to begin with. It's so nice when God agrees with them. <laughs> because they are the perfect people. Right. So, you know, it's like the old line, you know, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You'll just screw it up. Hey, I want to bring up about a song that's on Kissing Strangers. You've done a lot of covers over the years. You know, the Mamas and the Papas, the Bee Gees, even Cheap Trick. But Kissing Strangers, you did a cover of Leonard Cohen's First Way Take Manhattan. I mean, and that's been covered by everybody, too. You know, Jennifer Warrens, Joe Cocker, R.E.M. What was it about that song that you wanted to record your own version? Uh, I love the lyrics. I love Leonard Cohen. Uh, I know he got fleeced by his manager, so even if I could get, you know, 20 cents into the guy's pocket, I'm thrilled. The song apparently was originally written as a comment on the fashion industry and current culture. I actually see the song as an antichrist type figure sitting around the house plotting. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. see it far more maniacal. And that's, that's sort of the way I, I interpreted it, you know. It's like, okay, I'm just laying here in wait. You know, again, it's, it's just the way I perceive evil. 
you know, that that's evil sitting at home alone in its own apartments, you know, just waiting, just plotting for its big takeover. And then it's going to go out, put on the smile, you know, so it's sort of like, you know, uh, talking to my innermost thoughts and stuff, uh, you know, the, the dark side of us all that we, we hopefully are able to suppress to a certain degree while having our integrity and our honesty. And, and, and that's the way I saw that song. You know, and, I, and I'll be honest, I totally related to the very first line. They sentenced me to 20 years of boredom for trying to change the system from within. You know, that's the difference between me and a lot of other people. I'm not walking away. I'm not giving up on the church. I'm not giving up on God. I'm going to stick around. I will be the fly in the ointment because I think this is valid. I think this is true. You know, I'm sorry you've turned it into a sales pitch or a lifestyle or a get-rich-quick scheme. I see it as my relationship between the creator of the universe is that special and unique. And through that is a prism in which I can relate to the world and those around me. And I can tap into that kindness and that grace. And if I can share it and spread a little more kindness and love to the world around me, then I've done a good job. That should be my goal, is to spread grace and peace and apply my faith with wisdom. And do you think that the music of Dead Artist Syndrome has accomplished that? I, I don't know. I, I, I try not to over-interpret things because a lot of people will interpret a song and what it means to them is totally not what I intended. And frankly, some of them, it's like, wow, you thought about this is a lot deeper than I thought of. You know, uh, that, that's pretty interesting. I'm glad it touched them that way. I mean, that, that's the overall goal is to, to try and, and do something that conveys your, your heart and your soul and your, and your spirit and your thoughts. And, you know, you treat it sort of like the way Nielsen and Arbitron go, had, does ratings. Well, if I think this way, I must represent 200,000 people who think this way in this part of the world. Uh, and I try and relate to that, you know, I, you know, that human side, that emotion side. Because I don't think we're all, on, on one level, you know, I don't think we're all that different. It'd be like if the world, everyone was an F-150 pickup and we're all just painted different colors. I, I, I see a lot of things that we all deal with is very universal. Uh, but it's a lot of times cultural issues or sin-specific issues or personal issues enter in and become sort of like a, a prism in which we see things instead of, uh, the truth and God and faith and sincerity and, and like I said, grace, peace, love and mercy, you know, are great prisms to see things through. I mean, to me, one of the saddest things is, thank God I don't weigh my life by financial success. Otherwise, I am an abject failure, you know. You know, I've always wanted a motorhome. I don't know why. Ever since I was a little kid, I've wanted a motorhome. Very stupid. Everyone else wants a Corvette. I always thought having a motorhome is the greatest thing. Wherever you park, that's where you're sleeping. That's where I am. Perfect. Uh, and it makes the journey just as, as much fun as the destination. So with a motorhome, everything's a destination. You know, I'm kind of using it as an illustration, but that's kind of how my life is. I don't have a lot of things. A lot of people I know have a lot of things. I've never been a things person. I've been an experienced person. 
I have had a grizzly bear walk within 15 feet of me and know its power and its might and its wildness. You know, I, I try to go to Yellowstone National Park and I've been the Banff and Whistler and I just look at the majesty and those are, and those are just my cathedrals, you know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I can go to St. John's Divine in New York or St. Patrick's or any one of a number of beautiful cathedrals and have art overload. Yes, that is the hand of God in the sense that all that was created. But I sort of like creation itself. I, I get a charge out of creation and God's work here and God just letting loose the forces of nature, you know, to create these places. I'm glad you asked about the Cohen tune because everyone always jumps on the, the Pink Floyd tune. And it's like, yeah, I like Cohen that. is mind-boggling. Cohen's a genius. Probably the greatest single songwriter lyricist who ever lived. I mean, you're dealing with a guy who struggles with a line for three or four years before he will decide that's the line in the song. And even then, like, he's got to have at least 50 verses to Hallelujah. He's still working that gorgeous song. I've got seven-minute versions of that song. I've got, you know two-minute versions of that song. Mm -hmm. And then I've got horrible versions by, you know, Jeff Buckley and stuff like that. He'd be one of the greatest guys to sit down and have a talk with, especially being a Buddhist Jew. Yeah, and Leonard Cohen gave me one of my favorite quotes. He was asked, well, you're, you know, you're a Jewish Buddhist. Why do you keep bringing up Jesus and the cross and Calvary? Mm -hmm. And his answer was so eloquent and simple. He goes, who'd want to avoid Jesus? Yeah, God, it's so simple, and it's just like, gosh, why can't the church learn that message? Why would you want to avoid Jesus? And why is the Jesus you know about the woe to me Jesus and not the one who's compassionate and, and consoling, you know, and healing? I don't know. Then that's the thing. I come across as kind of cynical and down on the church, and I'm absolutely just the opposite. I just think there's too many people that... God lets have these little idiosyncrasies so they can run off and stay out of the way of people that are actually doing his work. Yeah. You know, it's like there's a reason that all these crackpots all go for certain people, you know, and, and certain screwballs. And I honestly think God pretty much knows at this point in their lives, that person is going to do more harm than good. So let's just take them out of the system and, and put them there. And then we can go back to the guy that's, you know, digging ditches in Guyana, you know, to get a water supply to a village. Yeah, exactly. That's what it's all about. Oh, that's the first Canadian sounding thing you said. What's that? The about. John <laughs> used to go on for hours on how all of his friends spend so much time saying about like an American. <laughs> and honestly, I had never noticed it until he pointed it out. And now you're so tuned into that and you can't now let I it am go. So, yeah, I am so tuned into Canadian idiosyncrasies. You were waiting for me to say that. So, like I said, that was the first Canadianism I heard. I, you know, I just can't believe we talked about music and neither of us brought up Bruce Coburn. That, that's kind of interesting. Brilliant songwriter. Coldest Night of the Year is one of the greatest songs ever written. But yeah, I love that song. Rocket Launcher, obviously. You know, anything off Stealing Fire, any, anything off anything. The guy's a genius. He turned me down for an interview, though, which really? is really disappointing. I, I can get you in. You know how you get in with him? You tell him how much you love the movie Rumors of Glory. <laughs> Even if I've never I seen at, it. 
Oh, man, I was at the premiere of Rumors of Glory at Filmex. I was there with Mark Hurd, Bob Bennett, uh, Michael Aguilar, uh, someone else. I can't remember who else. And my first thought was like, you know, if a bomb went off, I'd lose like three of my favorite songwriters. Yeah, so it was being debuted at Filmex, and there was an audio problem. And the audio just kept cutting in and out, and there were horrible sounds coming. And Bruce Coburn's just dying. You know, <laughs> this is the big Hollywood debut, and he, you know, so this had to be one of the worst nights of his life. And he was just so kind and gracious. He's just that type of guy. Yeah, this was had to be driving him absolutely nuts. They'd have had to drag me from the building. I would have said, give everyone their money back. They can't see it this way. Well, unfortunately, you never get to Bruce directly. You get him through his manager, Bernie, who has been in contact with me before. I've sent off so many messages in the last while about doing this, and it's just no. Bernie, 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 out there? Bernie, cut the brother a break. He asks good questions. (laughs) It's just quite possible Bruce doesn't want to reveal that much of himself. I think he just wants the thoughtiness and his wisdom and his intelligence come out in his songs. I think he likes the mystery. I think he likes the mystique. And, you know, frankly, I just think that's why, you know, a lot of the people who interview him just tend to be ear candy people because he knows it's not going to get past the shallow. Did you catch any trouble for saying son of a bitch and rocket launcher? You know, the other thing about Bruce Coburn is he appreciated other talents. I mean, look, you know, what he tried to do for the late Mark Hurd. Yeah. You know, he wasn't threatened. He embraced it. He wanted to nurture it. He wanted to move it along. You know, here's this guy who we all think's a genius, and he thinks someone else is a genius. Now, what I don't like, you find out your favorite artist is into, like, the Partridge family or the most shallow, insepid <laughs> thing. I mean, oh. but, uh, yeah, as far as, uh, yeah, Coburn, Coburn's an absolute genius. Heard was a genius. Paul Simon can be a genius. He sort of gave up on he it. He was. McCartney could be a genius if he'd go back to trying to make himself sound like Badfinger again, like he did. Uh, but McCartney needs a Lennon. He needs an editor. He, he just, you know, God, I'm telling the one of the greatest songwriters who ever lived how to write a song. Don't you love it? You know, I just, now I know, now I know how Jacob Dylan must feel. You know, he, you're, you're right he, on hey, all of dad, this. Here, Dad, I've got, I've got this new Wallflower song. And his dad just goes, you know, I, that just doesn't do anything for me. Well, Dad, you don't understand it. Look, son, I'm Bob Dylan. I'm pretty sure I understand it. You know, it's like... <laughs> and Bob Dylan, one of the worst singers of all time. And I never liked his music. And you read his stuff as poetry, and it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, I have a theory that there's a whole group of people that love Bob Dylan's songs, sung by anyone but Bob Dylan. Yeah. But see, that's how you tell a good song. Anytime I hear a song, and I'm trying to decide whether it's actually a good, well-done song, I just picture kermit the frog singing it and if it still sounds good it's a good song you know it's good song craft it turns a phrase well the melodies and counter melodies respond in kind you know brian i guess we got to close this thing up but first you've got to tell us where to find the music of dead artist syndrome and one more favor give us our closing song for the night uh closing song for the night I've always been fond of the song I did called Reach. It's just a very simplistic praise song that I did. 
And uh, I think the message that I, I, I always want people to hear, that's why I try and end concerts with it. Uh, just because I, I think it's just so simple that the creator of the universe is just waiting for a point of contact with you. And all you've got to do is try and make that point of contact. Just reach out your hands and let God love you. And I think amazing things can happen. And how does everybody buy your music? Well, I, it's on CD Baby. Uh, it's probably going to start going back up on other sites. Uh, Kissing Strangers is pretty much the most available right now. Right now, if you go to deadartistsyndrome.com, that'll take you to our Facebook page. But we're revamping everything, and we're going to make it all available again. Uh, because I, I kind of let it stay out of print. And now people are telling me who are just discovering, you know how I said about the how the audience recycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, now there's people that had never heard of it, and they, they want it now. So uh, that will will start to happen probably through deadartistsyndrome.com. And I'll probably start putting most of it up as a, at least digital download for the people that don't need a physical copy or their physical copy died. Most importantly, we want Brian Healy to get his motorhome. Yes. Boy, if you honestly have that gorgeous motorhome, I'll set a Class C's just fine because I probably couldn't you know, afford the gas for a Class A. Yeah, if you've got that motor home and you don't like your kids anymore or you never had kids and you're just thinking, who could I leave this to? I, I promise you I will take that motor home and I will start going to <laughs> national parks and holding church services on a regular basis because I couldn't think of a, a better cathedral to to share God and the gospel and love and faith and grace than in a natural wild environment. So, yeah, there's, there's my pitch. Now, because I always keep hearing these stories, how God gave this guy a bus and stuff. It's like, where is this guy? Where, where is the guy who gets the entire population of China to send him a dollar? Why can't I be him for a week? You know? <laughs> the antidote's been here with Brian Healy of Dead Artist Syndrome. And this has been so much fun. Thanks for coming for a talk. Thank you so much, Dave. I had a great time. Oh, Canada, how I love you. Thank you for producing John Candy and Second City and all my favorite people in the world. I miss you. <laughs>